Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. We've been telling you for years about the extensive wildfires in America's West, a natural but intensifying part of the region's ecology. Now comes the worst news. California's fires are creating emissions that easily offset any of its green policies. And one of Britain's stereotypes is the lad, committed to drinking and football and the unabashed trash-talking known as banter, the lad is a cultural touchstone. Yet, as various sensitivities heighten, lads do seem to be changing with the times. A bit. But first... All it takes is a look on social media to see that China's citizens have had enough of the country's zero-COVID policies. Back in February, when Shanghai was put on a poorly organized lockdown, there was much grumbling. But it was quickly stifled. Last week, though, a more acute flashpoint. A fire in Urumqi, the capital of the northwestern province of Xinjiang. At least 10 people died because they were reportedly trapped in a locked-down building. That appears to have opened floodgates of anger, and word is getting out. From Arunqi to Shanghai to Beijing to Chengdu, demonstrators are getting louder and bolder. Police have been showing up in force, even arresting a BBC journalist in Shanghai. The Communist Party is rattled, but its hands are tied. It's gone all in on zero COVID, and a tremendous number of Chinese people, particularly the elderly, still aren't vaccinated. It is, it always was, an unsustainable policy, economically, epidemiologically. What the party does now that it's proving socially unsustainable is a huge, maybe existential question. I went to what started out as a candlelit vigil in Beijing's diplomatic district on Sunday night. Gabriel Crossley is a China correspondent for The Economist. People gathered to commemorate the deaths of 10 people in Urumqi, a city in China's west, where 10 people died in a fire. Many people blamed COVID restrictions for the deaths. They laid flowers and they sang songs. 
the crowd increased to several hundred people. The chants moved away from simply commemorating the dead and there were increasing calls to end restrictions, end lockdowns, end constant COVID tests. The police presence increased throughout the night. At the beginning, there was a few officers just keeping an eye on things. By the end, there were hundreds of police lining the side of the road and eventually confronting the protesters and persuading them to go home. And that's fairly representative of protests that we've seen from kind of around the country now, right? Yeah, I think we've seen protests in college campuses, in several different cities. The vast majority of what people are calling for is an end to COVID restrictions, an end to lockdowns. It is true that some people, though, are being more daring. For instance, in protesters in Shanghai over the weekend, they directly called for President Xi Jinping to step down. This is, in China, incredibly rare to hear this kind of thing in public. And again, the police response that night was quite muted. They were simply watching the protesters shouting these slogans, down with the party, down with Xi Jinping, and liberate Xinjiang. In Chengdu, we've had some protesters who are shouting things like, give me freedom or give me death. This is all coming after months of rising tensions with COVID restrictions. So earlier in November, there was significant unrest among workers at the world's biggest iPhone factory over COVID controls and a belief that they had been lied to over pay. These led to heavy clashes with police, which were quite violent. Similarly, at small residential compounds, we've had people pushing over COVID barriers, which are put up to prevent people escaping and demanding that these constant controls over their normal lives end. So how is it then that, that these responses are so widespread, that, that everyone knows what happened in Urumqi and that everyone knows that uh, people elsewhere are, are protesting if the censorship machine is so notoriously good? If you have protests happening in several big cities all at the same time, I think it's pretty clear that the censorship machine has its limits. I think censorship workers are notoriously overworked they have to deal with a constant stream of videos, of images, of screenshots. And I think the volume seems to have been too much for them. So many of these videos were staying up for hours. Uh, many of these comments were not being taken down. We saw something similar uh, nearly three years ago now, right at the beginning of the pandemic, where a whistleblower doctor who had first seen signs of this infection died of the virus. His death reverberated around the country and caused a huge wave of anger. Similarly, censors then really struggled to keep up with blocking these posts, blocking these videos, and blocking these expressions of defiance. And you said that the police response that you've seen so far has been relatively muted, though. What, what do you make of that? Certainly, the response in Beijing has been muted. In Shanghai, while the first night of protests was also muted, the second night there were several arrests made. If we look at for instance, how the workers at the iPhone factory were treated, there's a lot more violent tactics used. 
I think you can see in Beijing, at least, and for students in general, it's pretty clear that police have been told to play it carefully and not incite any more violence if they can avoid it. And so what does that tell you then about how the Chinese Communist Party is going to deal with this if things continue at this level, at this scope? So far, its response has been muted, but that could certainly change. If large-scale protests continue, the CCP is certainly quite capable of violent repression, particularly in places like Xinjiang and against ethnic minorities. They could try dealing with student protests by punishing the leaders or pressuring their families. Dealing with angry workers, they can try both payoffs and violent threats. As for one of the most broad-based aspects of this unrest, which is the many angry middle-class urban residents who are sick of lockdowns, the party is already claiming it is trying to make COVID restrictions less onerous and more targeted. So it's already responding to these concerns from disgruntled urban residents and already trying to make zero COVID more comfortable. Well, that's been the question now for really quite some time, how long the the zero COVID policy can be sustained. Yeah, everyone is sick of zero COVID. It's been nearly three years, but it's still not clear how China can smoothly step away from this policy. To do so, among the things it would have to do, the most important is a huge vaccine booster campaign to protect elderly Chinese. This could take months, but there's no real sign it's even started. If China dropped all COVID restrictions now at the start of winter, this could bring about a wave of deaths among the elderly, which so far, the lack of mass deaths from COVID is something the party is extremely proud of. This kind of wave could also push China's public health system to breaking point. In which case, where do you see this going then? If, if all of these factors remain relatively constant, the best that's on offer is a slight loosening of, of its zero COVID controls. Where, what happens with all this unrest? Well, despite all the zero COVID restrictions in place, cases are rising fast in many cities. I think we're seeing over 40,000 cases a day now, which sounds small, but China also has to isolate all of the close contacts of these confirmed cases. So that's pushing 2 million people under some kind of isolation measures already. So the system is getting stretched. China could try to stop the spread with a harsh lockdown, but as you would expect, this could spur more unrest, or it could ease off further, but that would seem to risk an explosion in cases. So it doesn't look like there are any good options. Gabriel, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. For a deeper dive on the protests and how the party's control in China works and can slip, listen to Drum Tower, our new weekly show on Chinese affairs. The latest episode is out later today, wherever quality podcasts peaceably assemble. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. 
What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. In California, wildfires have become an ever-growing danger. Year after year, hot, dry summers create the perfect conditions for infernos that tear through the Golden State. I mean, I'm a, I'm a lifelong Californian, and it makes me weak for what we've done to my poor state. But beyond the trail of physical destruction left, there is another invisible cost of wildfires. The carbon emitted by burning trees is actually accelerating global warming itself and making California's push to become a greener state even harder. Fires are part of the sort of natural ecology of California, but what we're seeing really is an increasing trend towards the area that is being burnt in the state every year. Katrin Breik is The Economist Environment Editor. And that's being fueled by climate change. Hotter temperatures are drying out the state, creating a tinderbox condition. There's also positive feedback factor going on where wildfires basically create the conditions for more wildfires. So how does that work? So this comes down to the fact that trees and plants in general grow through photosynthesis. So they suck carbon dioxide out of the air. They capture the carbon in those molecules and turn that carbon into leaves and branches and roots. But what happens when a tree or a plant is burned is that that carbon gets released back into the atmosphere, combines with oxygen, and once more forms carbon dioxide. So whereas the traditional saying goes ashes to ashes, this is gases to gases in a sense. And so by emitting carbon dioxide, the wildfires are enhancing the global warming that is already being experienced. And that global warming feeds back into greater conditions for yet more wildfires. How big a problem is this? This is a huge problem worldwide. One interesting thing that we've seen is a study that's looked particularly at how greenhouse gas emissions from wildfires, which aren't normally accounted for, have evolved in the last couple of decades. In previous years, fires tended to emit on the order of 10 to 15 million tonnes of greenhouse gases each year. In 2020, that single season emitted 127 million tonnes of greenhouse gases. That's the same amount as a small African nation emits in a year. But the really surprising stat is when you compare that 127 million tons of greenhouse gases to the amount of greenhouse gases that have effectively been saved by California's emissions reductions since 2003. And when the researchers made that comparison, what they found was that the emissions in 2020 from wildfires were more than twice the amount of CO2 saved in the previous 17 years. But as you said before, wildfires are a natural phenomenon. Are things worse now than they have been in the past? Yes, they are. What we're seeing is as the climate warms up, the conditions are becoming um, better in a sense or worse, depending on how you look at it for fostering these wildfires. And so, again, if we're looking at California, the California Air Resources Board, which tracks the area that is burnt every year, has found that that area has steadily increased since 1950. 
2020, which, as we said, was really quite a remarkable year, was, in fact, the worst season so far, according to these records. The researchers do note that although the data isn't actually there yet, 2021 looks like it was probably quite a bad year as well, though not as bad as 2020. Now, what's important to note here is that what we're seeing is with these positive feedback loops where global warming generates the conditions for events that produce even more greenhouse gas emissions, therefore enhancing global warming, is that these events are eating into what's known as the carbon budget. And tell us about that, Katrine. What is the carbon budget? So the carbon budget is this idea that there are only so many more millions or billions of tons of greenhouse gases that can be emitted before humanity hits that 1.5 degree target that's enshrined in the uh, Paris Agreement. Generally speaking, we tend to think of this carbon budget as being something that's going to be used up by industrial processes, by driving cars and running factories and burning fossil fuels and agriculture. The positive feedback loops are creating new sources or enhancing existing sources of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, which are eating into that carbon budget. So while we might think that on current trends, there's roughly 10 years of emissions left before we consume the entire carbon budget for 1.5, if you take into consideration these positive feedback loops, including the fires, there's probably, in fact, much less time than that. So how can this be mitigated and what should California do about it? I think really the important message here is that wildfires aren't currently accounted for in most regions and countries' carbon accounting. As this study shows, that's a mistake. They are, in fact, a very large source of greenhouse gas emissions and they are likely to be a growing source of greenhouse gas emissions. So accounting for them is step one. And then, of course, and this is something that the people who live in these regions don't need to be told, it's really important that measures are put in place to control the burns. All right, Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. John, thank you. In the 1990s, The Lad ruled British and Irish pop culture. A show called Men Behaving Badly was emblematic of the era. For instance, she doesn't understand that lager is a metaphor for life itself. (laughs) The beer mats are the, if you like, the squeegee ground beneath our feet. The glass. The glass glass is is like the clothing around our body. Only glass clothing. Yeah. The show portrayed two men who lived for football, beer, the pursuit of women, and boundary-pushing banter. It was a time when Britain's biggest-selling newspaper, The Sun, showed topless women on page three. When England's footballers made errors, effigies of them were hanged. But times change, and sometimes people do, so The Lad is getting something of a rebrand. Lads are young men from Britain and often Ireland. They are aged 18 to 30. Duncan Robinson writes Badgett, our column on all matters British. 
they're not that bothered with sort of intellectual pursuits. Instead, they like sport and drinking and occasionally sex. And as regards the British lad, then, what's happened since their 1990s heyday? So the lads evolved a little. The lads become slightly more self-aware. Before, the lad was almost hegemonic, and now they realize that the sort of position of men in society is being challenged a little. And so you see that in lots of things. You see it with the use of phrases such as toxic masculinity, which have gone from being a phrase that was purely in academia to something that's used quite commonly. In normal discourse, you'll open a newspaper and you'll expect to see it. And so men realize that some things are now unsayable. In the 90s, it was sort of anything goes as long as it was banter and that involved being homophobic, that involved being misogynistic, it occasionally involved being racist. Now they realize that none of those things are really acceptable. So it doesn't mean that those views have necessarily gone away, but they know that there's now a stigma attached to it. So basically, you were saying a subculture that thought it was fun to say inappropriate things is simply saying fewer of them. It's not just that. So you see it in other areas such as mental health awareness. So there's been a massive push to make men more aware about depression and mental health issues. And that's been picked up by sort of former lads, people like Prince Harry, who's this sort of big drinking guy in his youth. And now he's a sort of mental health advocate. And you see it with footballers, they front campaigns on these sorts of topics. Life is strange for all of us right now. It's not a time for handshakes and we need more than passing hellos or how are yous. You good, bro? Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. How are you really feeling? It's time to find out how your friends and family are really feeling. It's sort of everywhere. That's become lad culture. But you've taken an interest in this that goes beyond studying football adverts. So I got tired of sort of reading and, and thinking about the Great British Lad and thought I had to go out there and meet the Great British Lad. So I tried to find someone who I thought personified the tensions within Lad identity at the moment. And I found him in Leicester via a Twitter account known only as Pussyman Dan. Football is about to come home. It's about to come home. We went on a big night out together and we drank a lot of alcohol together and we had a very fun evening together. We ended up in a nightclub in Leicester called The Fan Club. Dan's got quite a lot of following on Twitter. He makes jokes. My mate said the other day, who do I think is going to lift the World Cup? And I said, lift it. It's not like it's a weight at the gym, is it? His character is a lad who realises he must reform. He realises he can't be misogynistic. Back to the kitchen? Nah. More like back to 10 Downer Street to show the men who's boss. Congratulations, women. He must be in touch with his mental health, but he does it in a way that's sort of simultaneously quite offensive at the same time. And this is a very popular account. So Dan's a pretty normal lad. He is relatively cynical about the way that issues like mental health are used by companies to sell their products. And he's a little bit sort of fed up with that, which is why he sort of started the account. But his general point is that the view of the lad has sort of shifted slightly too far in a progressive direction, that lads are not quite as progressive as people now think they are. But given what you've dug into, is he representative then? Is this, is this one person the, the lad we should now think of? There is some data to back this up. So while young men are much more progressive than their parents, they're a bit less progressive than you might expect. So obviously a 65-year-old has slightly more aggressive views than someone who's younger. But there's a big gap between young men and young women. So that manifests itself in voting. While both young men and women are much more likely to vote conservative, twice as many young men vote Tory than do young women. And you also saw it with the Leave vote, where it was the same ratio, that twice as many young men voted Leave as did young women. So it's about 40% of men aged 18 to 24 voted Leave. Now, there is a caveat to this in that you do need to take polling of that age breakdown very 
skeptically, often because young men are very hard to track down. They always lose their phones. They don't pick up when pollsters do ring. And they also, when they do pick up, find it quite funny to give incorrect answers. But there is something that's being missed in the general view of the, the modern lags. There's this stereotype of young people that they're sort of inevitably going to become much more progressive and be a little woke. And if you go to a, a football match and sit in the away stand, that isn't always the case. And so uh, while there is a sort of woke panic in, in certain newspapers that the youth are sort of too right on, I would advise them to look at what happened last summer during Euro 2020, which was hosted in London. There was a lot of crowd trouble, and there was one young man wearing a bucket hat who drank a lot of cider and took a lot of cocaine, and then in the middle of central London put a flare up his bottom. Now, that to me suggests that the lad is not quite dead. Well, notwithstanding the kind of people who would put fireworks there... Can we can we really say the, the the lad is changing here? Is the lad just sort of under some social pressure around him that that feels sort of inconsistent in a way that it didn't before? How much is the lad really changing? The lad's definitely changing due to border social pressures. It's been a huge shift in a relatively short amount of time, and so people who've grown up thinking that certain things are normal and okay are now being told in their you know their late twenties and early thirties that it's not okay, and that means that their behaviour has to shift, and it will take longer before their attitudes shift. And so you will have this sort of peculiar push and pull between top-down requests that you can't say certain things and people actually accepting it in their hearts. And so on topics like mental health, that is a very important issue. It's predominantly young men who kill themselves. And so the comparison I always like to make is with health and safety. It was predominantly men at work who used to die in their thousands during the 1980s. And a big push on health and safety meant that now very few people die at work. And hopefully with a similar push on mental health, you will have fewer young men killing themselves. But what you have to be careful of is make sure that it doesn't become abused because people have a quite a cynical attitude towards health and safety now. But its importance gets forgotten and people become immune to it almost. And so you have to be careful to make sure that mental health doesn't end up in the same bucket Thanks very much for joining us, Duncan. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.